I'm Dr. Amalia Ganyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us today is South Africa's High Commissioner to New Zealand, Oyeswa Tulelo. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. To begin with, your political career started out in the youth structure of the ANC. You then rose through the ranks and you now represent South Africa all the way in New Zealand. Can you please share with us firstly some of the work that you do as well as the responsibilities that come with holding the role? Well, um, being a high commissioner is completely different from being a youth activist. Uh, part of what I'm uh, tasked with is one, as the president has been saying over and over, to find opportunities to bring investments back home. So I'm responsible to engaging business and companies in New Zealand that do not that have not started investing in South Africa, but also those who already have investments in South Africa to upscale their their investments. And then I do the political management, you know, to make sure that the relationships are smooth and run accordingly. So I have to from time to time speak to the foreign minister, speak to the prime minister and different politics, uh, political parties in New Zealand just so that I cannot be seen as taking party political sides. I have to speak to everybody across the spectrum. Then there's one part of my job that is fascinating for me, but I guess not very glamorous. New Zealand has um, quite a sizable number of South African experts that have made New Zealand home and not all of them have uh, uh, done away with their South African citizenship. So we have a lot of inquiries around um, enabling documents, your passports, IDs, birth certificates, and, and that does take up a lot of the time just because of the number of South Africans that are there. So my day can end, be anything like waking up in the morning to have breakfast with the Prime Minister and ending my day on the phone with a South African who is absolutely distraught because they need their ID, they need their passport because the child needs to get a visa to go to school and having to deal with those technical issues. So it's a really broad spectrum that I operate in. And with that last point, it's about almost that you've got this home grounding component reminding you of why you're there and that we, we've got our diaspora that is globally Absolutely. And, and it's important for us, one, because I'll tell you that these South Africans also, if you use them, utilize them correctly, they are an asset to, to South Africa. Because when they make home to these new countries, they don't only just make home, but they bring their skills, they bring their assets to these new countries, and they become ambassadors almost, if you wish, uh, of telling what South Africa is about. So it's important to make sure that our relationship with them is well managed and we are always honest and, and, and open with them. But like you're saying, it's a constant reminder for me that my task is about South Africa. My task is not about New Zealand. New Zealand happens to be my office, right? But my job is about South Africa. And in that relationship dynamic, increasingly we are an interconnected, global society that you're not just doing work in an isolated area, but you're working with your counterparts, whether it is across Asia, Africa, the world. Can you tell us about some of the more significant projects or programs you're involved with? All right, so South Africa is the only other African diplomatic uh, space available in New Zealand outside of Egypt. So there are only those two, which means that a lot of the work that relates around Africa lies on the shoulders of South Africa. So, for instance, we've just completed 
um, a project with the Minister for Ethnic Communities. So this is the ministry that is set up in New Zealand to help all the new immigrants, especially non-European immigrants, to settle in, in New Zealand. And so we were talking to them about how integration is not just about giving people the citizenship. Integration is about making sure that their cultures remain visible in the communities that they live in, that when they go to the store, they can find something that they can recognize, that when their children go to school, their children can find somebody who understands something about them and not just want to paint them with one uh, brush and say, oh, now you are a New Zealander. And the beautiful thing about New Zealand is that it is very aware of the multicultural dynamics. So the Minister for Ethnic Communities has commissioned um, a report to find out how New Zealand is doing in terms of assimilating and helping ethnic communities settle in. And I'm very excited to hear what the outcomes of that of that report is. But we do things like we, we work with South Af with African communities around Africa Day. And usually this is about showcasing what these communities bring to New Zealand. Again, as I said, when people make home in a new country, they don't only become a burden, they become an asset for that country. So it is wonderful to see these Africans being in New Zealand, being part of the economy, some of them running uh, hair salons. I have this lady who does my hair, and for me it's a beautiful thing because I don't have to worry about my hair. But some of them being highly skilled, being like doctors, uh, technicians, and all those kind of things. And it's always good to showcase that when Africans leave, it's not always because they want help. They also bring their way, and that adds to the value of the host country reminds me, I had a, a great conversation, in fact, just last week with the former president of Mauritius, and we were talking about how, as Africans, when we go out to different countries, that it is an investment, whether it is about taking on an educational aspect, but you plow back into the country where you're retaining that education, and they reap the economic benefits. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's, that's the one message that we still need to really work hard as Africans to say, when we leave Africa, it is not always because Africa is terrible. The generation, at least my generation, when they leave Africa, they don't leave Africa necessarily because there is war or there is uh, corruption. They leave Africa because they think, you know what, I need to go out and see what the world has to offer. I need to skill myself, arm myself, and come back and make my country even greater. So when I meet these, sort of, these Africans out there, it is amazing. I had a conversation two weeks ago with one young man who's a Zimbabwean, and he works for Statistics New Zealand. Can you imagine that a young man from Zimbabwe, and, and he's a mathematician, and he says to me, the work that I do helps the New Zealand government to know how to budget, how in, in their planning cycle. But I am doing this so that I can arm myself so that when I go back home, I am able to bring the skill to my people in Zimbabwe. And the New Zealand are benefiting from him. It's not like he's becoming a burden, you know. So it's important that when we speak about ourselves as Africans, we don't always say, oh, we are the ones who are challenges. New Zealand has its own challenges. Yes, we have challenges, but by and large, when we go out there, we are an asset to our host nations. And when you're talking about challenges and Africans going out, so two things. Firstly, unfortunately for South Africa, uh, Professor Cheryl Delaray is now going to New Zealand Absolutely. to become a, a VC. You know, but, but that again, and I share that and I say, but that tells you that these countries know can you imagine the investment that South Africa has put in, in Professor Delaray? Now she's going out there to go and create more brilliant minds in New Zealand. That's, that's not a burden. That, is, that can by no means be a challenge. It is some gold that New Zealand is plowing from South Africa to go and enrich itself. 
And reflecting on our narrative, I feel like a lot of the words we're using, we're not just using South Africa, we're using Africa. And I consider that part of your job and, and part of our role is that we're not just representing South Africa, we're representing the continent. Oh, absolutely. And I think that because South Africa's um, op- way of looking at it has always been the strength of South Africa is an indication of where the continent is going. South Africa cannot be the sea of success in a continent of trouble, right? So it's important that when we go out there and we speak about South Africa, we have a backyard that uh, meets the story that we are telling. So how do we have this backyard? Make sure that our brothers and sisters up and down in the continent have the necessary support to deal with the issues that they need support with. But also make sure that where they do good, we are the first ones to tell the tale. We can't wait for someone else to speak it on our behalf, right? We need to sing their praises because the world out there doesn't wait for us to sing its praises. Some countries will tell you how great they are, right? And you'll be looking at them and you'll be like, all right, is that, if that's what you say, it's cool. But we are so modest. We are always trying to hide behind, oh, we have challenges. Everybody has challenges. But the question is, what do we do with those challenges? Do we convert them into opportunities? And I, I can bet and tell you that Africa has done wonderful over the last past 10 years. I mean, just, just think about what has happened in Ethiopia now with the new leadership that is coming in Ethiopia. That is telling you that Africa has identified what her challenges are and have changed those into opportunities. You look at how Zimbabwe, let's take Zimbabwe, our neighbor, uh, you look at the transition, everybody was pulling out their hair that, oh, there's going to be bath blood. But Zimbabweans were like, hey, no, 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 we got this. We, we're going to do this and we are going to reach out to every Zimbabwean, irrespective of color, creed, come back home and let's make this work. This is the story that South Africa has to tell to say, when there is peace and stability in our neighborhood, we have a story to tell. And a unifying story. Now, as we're a gender-based radio program, one of the the questions or one of the aspects that I look at is about women in leadership. And when I was doing my research on you and the country that you're in currently, I think New Zealand is a special country insofar as female leadership is concerned. It's had three female prime ministers serve in office, Jenny Shipley, 1997 to 1999, Helen Clark from 1999 through to 2008, and currently Jacinda Ardern. Women occupying positions in government and serving heads of state is really significant for a number of reasons, be it from demonstrating empowerment of women in governance, women in these positions serve as role models for other women. Having suitable gender representation is also important in terms of policy development and policy implementation. As a female leader, can you share your perspectives on this subject? One of the things that I'm continuing to learn is that because biologically you are a woman, it doesn't guarantee that your perspective is that of a gender-biased or gender-favored one, right? And, and yes, New Zealand has done wonderful in getting women up to the helm of leading the country. But did you know that the parity between men and women payment is still the highest in New Zealand. I did not. What ratio are we looking at? So I, I would say about for the same job, women would earn about 40% less than what men. And, and, and this is an issue that they, they are taking on seriously now. And, 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 and I'll think about it for a country that has had three women prime ministers. And you ask, but how possible is this that 
There's still this. I mean, just in the last two months, it, they now had for the first time a conversation where rugby players, both men and women, could talk about earning same salary. Whereas, and we know that New Zealand and rugby is amazing, right? So the all blacks, everybody knows that they are the New Zealand brand. But the white fans, they have to have extra jobs to sustain themselves. Yet they do the same sport that the All Blacks do. The question is, what is the difference? The only difference is that the white fans happen to be an all-female team and the All Blacks happen to be an all-male team. So we have to be very conscious of the fact that just because we have female leaders in the face of, of, um, of a country or institution, it's not a guarantee that it's going to change our gender perspectives. I will say, though, that uh, Ms. Aden is working really, really hard to bring the gender conversation down to basics. And I just love the fact that she's a new mom, and she's a mom and a prime minister and doing it at the same time. But it is a shock for New Zealanders because it has evoked conversations about, shouldn't be at, she be at home taking care of the baby? Why is she bringing the baby? Why is she doing this and this and this? The question is, but she didn't make the baby alone. Why is it not possible that the partner can take equal responsibility? So I think that we need to have a different approach to speaking about gender sensitivities and gender equity. It almost have to start from basics, right? Our children, how we teach our children in the home, what they are taught in school, so that when they grow up, they understand that our biology is just but how we are born, right? But that does not define our capacity, our capabilities, and what we can achieve. But unfortunately, the world now still sees the, everybody through the male-female lens, and a lot of the decisions we make are based around that. And so I think we need to, and, and having two children, a boy and a girl myself, I strive to teach my child, children to know that the chores in the home for everybody there. I don't have girl and boy choice, choice, but it's important that when we talk about policy formulation, we go a step back and say we need to have a societal education because policy can be up there. The integration between society and policy is still a long way off. It's interesting that you say that. So we look at socialization in the home and there you've You've got control. You, I don't want to use the word dictate, but you, you're the government at home and everything fair is fair. But the challenge is, is when they go out the home. The challenge is when they're exposed to other people's visions, other people's stereotypes, and, and maybe it's gender types of, of what they should do. And, you know, we, we have these conversations of, you know, change one family at a time. I am so concerned that we're going to run out of time. Absolutely, and that's what I'm saying. You need, to, you need to take it to school. You have no idea how much the schooling system influences our perspective of our children, right? So if we make sure that our education system teaches gender equality, we, we've won half of the battle. So if they leave home and they go to school, right? And in school they have these assignments that they see. They are not gender-based, but these are just assignments based on the day of the week right? And when they leave school, they go to university. What happens? You have a reinforcement of what they were taught in school and at home. What do you think they're going to do when they get into society? They are already, they've already internalized this notion of 
equality and fair is fair. But unfortunately, what we do now, we preach about teaching them in the home, but our education system, our, our social contracts, our churches, our sports clubs, the supermarkets, they say something completely different. And that's where, for me, the disconnection is. But once we get these two to speak to each other, I don't care you, you, what gender you identify yourself as, but we need to know that there are no gender-specific roles. So if, a, if my son likes cooking, nobody should make fun of him because he's a boy. If my girl wants to play rugby, or nobody should say, oh, but you're a girl. But unfortunately, that's the stereotypes that the school perpetuates. Because when they have classes and they say, choose your electives, and the boy is like, oh, I want to do, and they're like, hmm, maybe you should go to the robotics class. But if we have that mindset changed, they will know he's interested in cooking. Well, off you go to cooking. She's interested in robotics. That changes the whole perspective. At least that's my view of it, that we, we can't separate. We can't think it's only home-based. thing. It's, it's, you have to start from home, but every part of society has to meet you in this conversation. Two things that you spoke about earlier was one that having female leadership isn't necessarily a guarantee that we're going to see gender changes transferring through society. Then another very important point that you raised was the issue about unequal pay, doing the same job but not being, having, receiving the same, the same salary, and that that gap in New Zealand can be as much as, as 40%. We need to have women participating in the labor force because they, they contribute towards our economy, towards themselves, their livelihoods, and from a South African point of view, I noted that women are, are underpaid on average 23% less than men. We are, account for approximately 44% of people in the workforce, but we also account for 80% of underskilled positions. Yep, absolutely. And that's, that is because, and this is also because of this gender stereotyping, right? Because it is assumed that uh, if you are looking for somebody to skill, you have to skill the man because he will provide for the family. But what about the girl who doesn't want to get married? who's going to provide for her. But once we do away with that narrative and say, you skill those who require to be skilled, irrespective of what sex they are, you are, you are doing away with that. That's one thing. But secondly, we need to understand that these women, even though they may be in the background, they run these corporations, right? And, and the reason why they cannot come to the fore is because the culture of these corporations, and sometimes even government, doesn't promote women to come out, right? And people will always say, oh, women are so emotional. And I'm like, uh, no, they just like to express themselves. Why does that end? Or something like if a woman is very assertive, then they say she's arrogant, right? And, but when a man is doing it, it's like that man rocks. He is so assertive. We need to change these narratives. But where do we change these narratives if we don't start from the basics? Like I said, at a policy level, you can do all the policy pronouncement or legislate as much as you want. But somebody has to implement those policies. And if somebody doesn't understand why am I supposed to do this thing, they're not going to do it. So policy and implementation. The ANC, I think, is fantastic, and I've heard many people talk about that it's viewed as a zebra. 50-50. Mm. Men, women. Mm. And 
I think that that has been part of the reason that we have had so many women. I think we account for approximately 42% mm. representation in Parliament. Mm. That is clear application, implementation of, of policy and a, a declaration. We stand behind this, and that has provided women the opportunity. But in the corporate space, we don't have that. Exactly. First thing first, the ANC, it didn't happen by magic, right? It didn't, the men didn't just wake up and they were like, yay, today we're going to give you power. No, no, no. The women had to fight every step of the way to get that power. And, and to this day, they still fight because they still have to answer the question, why do women have to be deputy ministers instead of being actual ministers? Why do you think that the only thing they can do is to become deputies? And then it's like, uh, uh, okay, we, we'll come back to you on that one. And it's the same thing with the corporate sector, that when women don't use their voice in the spaces that they are, nobody is going to do that. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, Using, I, I use the ANC's example because that's the organization I grew up in. And I say to them, like, but you don't understand the battles that the women's league has had in the background. You can fault the women's league for whatever you want to fault it for. But for the ANC to be where it is, do, do you, can you imagine that in 1994, the ANC had a 10% as a quota for women in, in its leadership? In 1994, right? By the time it hit 2000, it was 30%. So this, is not, this has not been an overnight. Bro. By the time it hit 20, 20, uh, 2000, it was 30%. By the time it hit 2010, it was 50%. So you can gradually see the growth. Now there's a new struggle to say, okay, now we have the zebra stripe, but can you now at least stop making them deputies? Uh, can they actually be the one? Look at those leadership structures. You elect the leaders, the man is the one in the position, the woman is... But again, it's a knowledge that you have to take, tell the women in the ANC that you are the ones who vote for these people, right? So it's important that you start to assert yourself and say, women cannot continuously be deputies. So the, the ANC is going into another set of challenges. But unfortunately, it's leaving the rest of South Africa behind because they are still dealing with how do many women do we bring in here? And we are not challenging corporate sector enough because we think that, oh, what if I lose my job? I, I don't want to rock the boat because if I seem to be talking too much, I may lose my job, so I'll just stay behind. But women have this collective bargaining power. If, if, if we use that power and, and, and go to corporate uh, institutions and say, look here, we, we, have, you've got, we have now had 24 years to figure out what you want to do. Clearly, you are not doing anything. This is what, the bare minimum. You can't always have one woman who is, a, every time you speak about women leadership and then they tell you, oh yeah, we have one, no. The same, recycling the same. What about the other women? Are you telling that there are no other women with capacities to do this except for this woman? No, there are others, but we need to use our collective bargaining power to open those spaces. So when I hear you, it's not just about legislation, the implementation, and having people on the outside saying, yes, we will support. It's about driving that change from within. From within. And only women can do it. And then I say this again, I use the example of my experience. In the diplomatic community, 10 years ago, 90% of our heads of missions were male. Right? But we had to have the conversation to say, what are we saying? 
we speak gender equity, we speak about women uh, progression, but we, it, we're not showing it, right? And so how do we do that now? Then we had to come to a determination to say women have to be affirmed. They have to be given responsibilities as heads of mission. But that was an interesting conversation because then we got the women, but we got the more seasoned kind of women, right? So you look at the diplomats, these are people who are 60 plus, and the question was, you are now investing in a person who is in the sunset of their life. So this person is going to serve the country for 10, 15 years maximum, disengage, not because they don't want to, but just because life now demands them to do something else. Uh, where is your succession plan? How do we do that? So now we're having a, a new conversation in the diplomatic community to say, how do you bring up young people in the diplomatic communities? Because there is the, the notion that diplomatic relations is for older people is becoming outdated now because diplomacy now is on Twitter, on Instagram. So I can't be having an ambassador who's going to be calling somebody. How do I tweet? I need to be able instantly, as I do something, communicate that. I need to be able to know how to find information on the spot when I'm not in the office. I might be at an event and somebody asks me about, oh, this happened in South Africa. What do you say? I need to be able to go on my Twitter or on my Instagram and find the information immediately to deliver that. But these are not conversations that happen once off. These are lifelong conversations. And I say to the young people in the department, you have to raise your voice. Nobody's going to do it for you if you don't raise your voice. The same thing for women. If we don't raise our voices, nobody's going to do it for us. You are passionate in what you do. You are forthright about driving change and, and unafraid of, of driving change. I'd like to take you back a little bit towards your student days and, and activism. Recently, there's been a huge wave of movements like Me Too, Time's Up, and I wanted to ask you your opinion on these types of campaigns, if you consider them to be harmful or helpful towards advancing women's progress and attaining equality. Any opportunity or platform that forces us to speak about these heinous crimes that are connected or conducted against women is something worth celebrating. We have for too long hid in the shame of our bodies being used to please other people, right? And you can't speak up because he's your boss, you can't speak up because he's famous, uh, and what if people don't believe you because you are only the little girl and blah, 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 blah. But who says he has more rights and uh, entitlement to dignity than you have? And for me, these movements are forcing us now, right, to, to speak out. Um, do you agree with everything they do? I don't think that we have monopoly over the strategies that they can employ. But what I do agree about is that we need to speak out. You look home now, the, the Zondo, the, the Zondo uh, situation, and, and I'm sitting there, and I'm now in a foreign land, right? Sitting there looking at this, and I'm thinking, my word, I am glad I didn't become a lawyer. <laughs> because, yes, you have to prove the case of your client, but do you have to make somebody feel like they're nothing? Is that the only way that you can prove your client's innocence? What about the dignity of this young woman? I'm not arguing the merits of whether she agreed or not agreed, but if she is saying that something happened to her, just like your client has to prove that he didn't do it, she must be afforded the same 
dignity. But we, we don't do that because there's a shame about sexual violence, right? And, and I think that what we need to demystify is that when people have been violated, because sexual relations is a very special thing. If you want it, it's a beautiful thing that you share with someone else. But if somebody takes it by force, they are scarring you for life because you will never be able to enjoy that relationship to its maximum because you always have this animal sitting in the back of your head. So what do we do as a society? How do we help those young women heal? How do we help them move forward so that they can enjoy their lives to the fullest? So yes, we need to speak about this thing. We need to be able to face that demon and say, just because you are famous, you are rich, uh, you are a pastor or you are a minister, doesn't give you access to other young girls' body any minute you want to. Great points. Now, given your experiences, we've relayed the fact that the picture of the ANC looked very different from a woman's point of view, 1994 to today. The diplomatic core has been dramatically transformed in the last 10 years. Given the direction that we're moving in, how do you think South Africa will look like in 10 to 20 years from now concerning women's rights and gender equality? I'm, I'm excited about where South Africa is going to. I think that South Africa has a few things to teach the world. And, and I am so excited that young women and women are coming up to claim their space and not in the party politics confines, across party politics, right? And I think that's a beautiful thing to watch young women coming out and saying, you are not going to dictate how we are going to develop. If I want to do this, I want to. If I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to do it. But I think the one thing we need to be very careful of, if we do not unite to protect the gains that we've made, we stand the risk of losing them. Because these rights, as I said, they are not natural, they are not inherent. People earned them, they worked for them. So we can't take them for granted. We need to protect them for the next generation of young women. But we also stand in a place where really the world can come to us to learn and see how we move from the trajectory of just theoretical uh, speculation and, and announcement to actual implementation. South Africa is a beautiful country to watch. And I mean, if, since that I've left it, it, it becomes even so much more. Because I look at the edit and I'm thinking, my word, I was home and I didn't even realize how far ahead we are to the rest of the world, right? But the only thing that the world speaks about is our challenges. But we are so much more than our challenges. And sometimes we are our worst enemy because we are the very ones who go out there and talk about how bad things are in South Africa, how things are not working and all those things. And then you look at it and you're like, Yes, we do have problems and we have to fix those problems, but that's not a totality of who we are. So I am really excited to see South Africa. I can say this with surety that within the next 10 years, party politics are going to be very different because young women are realizing more and more the need for cooperation and collaboration outside of the confinements of uh, um, party politics, of religion and class color, young women realize more and more that there's one thing that is common. We are women, right? And if there's going to be any abuse that goes to one woman, what makes me think it's not going to come my way? Very, very good point. And I look forward to taking that journey and seeing how we transition in that period. We're coming towards the end of the show. 
And here I tend to ask questions from a personal nature. So one of the questions that I ask my guests who've all made tremendous achievements in their respective fields of, of expertise is about some of the factors that they consider to contribute to their success. I, I think that, again, um, women in my life. My, my mother has been an absolute rock. And I always say this and I say, my mom doesn't even have... Um, matric. She's, she's just a working class girl. But she has raised two fearless go-getting young women. And, and she has stood behind us every step of the way. For me, even so much more that as I represent my country abroad, my mom has put her life on hold to support me. She was with me in the United States. She's with me in New Zealand. And when people ask me, what drives you? I say, if I can own just a little ounce of the dignity, of the wisdom and the humility that this woman owns, I'm made. My mom is my biggest hero and my biggest role model. And as I engage with women, and I've met women who are exceptional and outstanding, and I look at them and I'm like, you, you better meet my mom. You haven't seen nothing yet. She sounds like a great lady. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the pivotal moments in your life growing up that, that have shaped you to become who you are? Hmm. Okay, so as I, again going back to my mom, I said my mom, she's, she's a very humble, she's the kindest lady that I've ever seen. And growing up, I, I used to, in my mind, used to watch how I thought that neighbors were taking advantage of her. We didn't have much growing up, but my mom always shared the little that we have. So I always had neighbors coming in asking for this or that or that or that, and my mom would never say no, right? Uh, but if we wanted a new pair of shoes, she would be like, oh, you have to wait, we can't afford that. And I'm like, but ma, you just gave away a whole pack of rice to the neighbors. What's, what's the deal? But growing up, I, I always wanted to understand what drives her. And I found that she has a deep love and passion for her people. And so I, th I thought to myself, if there's a way that I can amplify what she is. And so I, I grew up wanting to serve my people because of what my mom and who my mom was, right? And, and so got involved in student activism because I found that students had a challenge. We have to solve this challenge. So being my mother's daughter, I was like, okay, I'm getting in there. I'm fixing it. Then I find out, okay, this is not just a student challenge. It is a youth challenge. Being my mom's daughter, I'll get in there. I'm fixing it. And now I find myself, I'm like, oh, the country has a challenge of a reputation. So what do I do? Get in there fix it. But it's those kind of moments that have driven me there to say, it's not about you. Uh, and I always say when people ask, uh, what, so what would you think is your greatest achievement? I'm like, I don't measure those achievements against me. What I look at is from what I've done, how many people have been able to lift others. So if I start a project, right, and I disengage from it, how many people will go through that project and will be able to lift others? And when I help somebody, there's only one thing I ask for all the time, pay it forward. That's all I ask for. Don't make it about you. Make sure other people can, can get it. And so that's basically for me, I always be like, okay, if there's a problem, you fix it. 
not because it's for you, but because once your community is settled, everybody's happy and everybody's uplifted. Fantastic. I'm feeling inspired already. And lastly, as we close out today's show, could you please share a few words of wisdom or inspiration that you'd like to impart to young ladies listening to us on the continent? So being a woman is really hard work, right? <laughs> and, and sometimes we, we have to make hard decisions. We have to choose between being the popular girl um, and having friends or being the girl who stands for principle and making the popular girls have a safe journey through their popularity. And, and these are personal decisions that we have to make. But one thing I want to say to young women, don't ever let anybody tell you you can't do it no matter what it is you want to do. You are the only person who can determine whether you can do something or not. And don't want to be someone else. Please don't want to be me. Do it your way. Um, and, and one of the things that I, I go back to is like when I arrived in the diplomatic community, everybody told me that, oh, yeah, we dress in a certain way. We wear stockings. We wear makeup. I don't know how to put on makeup. I've never worn a stocking in my life. So I rock up in my all-stars. Ready for work. Ready for work. And they look at me and they're like, and I'm like, this is me. I am doing the same thing that you are doing. I am making sure that opportunities are found for my people. I am running that flag like crazy. Everybody, you go to New Zealand and you ask who the South African High Commissioner is, everybody who knows this is because she's the one who rocks up with all stars. Does it mean I'm a lesser High Commissioner? No. Be you and do you the best way that only you can. Fantastic message. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful chatting with you. You have been listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. And today we have been talking to South Africa's High Commissioner to New Zealand, Buhiswa Tulelo. <laughs>